Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour with some more great guests. And coming up on today's show, tackling the supply side of the drugs market will never be enough. That's the conclusion of the currency who've been looking into the issue of drug use in Ireland. Some very interesting statistics. I'll have Thomas Uber from the currency here to take us through what exactly they found. Now, we all know the phrase that culture eats strategy every time. Well, Frank Devine specialises in creating high performance culture and he'll be here to talk about his new book. It's called Rapid Mass Engagement. And finally, Elon's at it again. Musk threatens to take on Ireland in the and we'll be catching up with Elaine Byrne to find out what's going on at X. You can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, how should managers create meaningful cultural change in organisations? Should they continue the very traditional top-down approach or should they go radical? Well, my next guest thinks that change can only come when there's real employee engagement. Frank Devine is founder of Accelerated Improvement Limited and he specialises in corporate culture. His new book, Rapid Mass Engagement, is out now and I'm happy to say he's on the line. Frank, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Oh, thank you, Mandy. Now, Frank, we very often hear that phrase, culture eats strategy every time. Mm. Just maybe explain to, to us all, what exactly do we mean when we say the corporate culture of a company and how important is it? Well, culture is what happens when uh, nobody's looking. So um, it's what people do when they feel um, that they're not being observed or watched or or anything like that. So it's the natural behaviours that people exhibit when they're not on guard, if you like. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose culture is a kind of ethereal thing, but it's something Mm. that everybody feels within an organisation. Do you feel that 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 sense of what the company is about internally has become more important now as, I suppose, employees have a little bit more power? Well, certainly the difference in power uh, dynamics in, in the economy, where there's lots of jobs, very few jobs, which is why I had to leave Ireland 50 years ago, that does make a difference because, if you like, bosses can get away with things when there's high unemployment and they have to be more careful when there's low unemployment. But the point is, it shouldn't depend on the economic situation. It should be, ideally, a situation where when people go to work, they actually look forward to going to work. Now, I know that sounds a bit idealistic, but it can be it can be created. Mm. No, no, and it does exist. It's it's mm. not a unicorn. So tell mm. us, um, your book is is advocating a bottom-up approach, but let's just talk about the top-down approach first so we can kind of right. all understand what is wrong yeah, yeah, with yeah. that in the first instance. Tell us how traditionally it has been a, a, a top-down approach. Well, my my approach comes from years of frustration um, in corporate life in trying to make the top-down approach work and um, achieving what I would call short-term success. So all the all the metrics move in the right direction, but then finding that um, after a while, uh, old habits um, take over. Uh, people get promoted. I got promoted um, many times, and then when I look back what I'd achieved in the previous jobs, it wasn't sustained. So that that led to a crisis of confidence because I realized that it was too dependent on 
small number of individuals, whereas what we needed was a culture that was so strong that it was independent of changes in management. Mm. And that's quite a quite a challenge, Mandy. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. And we'll go into mm. some of the, the advantages of the bottom-up approach in a moment. But before we do, the book goes into a lot of examples as to how and where this works. Can, can, you, yeah. can you talk us through some of the companies you might have worked with yeah, and examples? Course. Yeah, well, um, Dupuis Synthes down in Ringeskiddy Going into the um, 2008-2011 recession um, wasn't in a good place um, compared to some other sites. Um, but coming out of it, coming out of that recession, the workforce had increased from 650 to 1,350. In other words, the site and the site management and employees actually generated, they doubled the amount of employment during a recession in a globally competitive area like medical devices. Mm. Um, now, to do that, um, I mean, what drives me is about keeping communities together. My own, I had to say goodbye to my own mother when I left Ireland in 1974. And um, for me, it's about more families not being disrupted like that. Um, and in that case, 700 jobs with the multiplier effect that Enterprise Ireland use is 2,100 plus 700, 2,800 jobs during a recession. That's um, that's pretty impactful from in terms of what I try to achieve in life, if you like. Mm. Okay, so there are statistics. There are, the mm. company went from 650 to 1,350. What was it about the culture that was an integral part of moving the company from 650 to over a thousand jobs yeah well uh, essentially um big multinationals will send capital and invest in sites that deliver to their customers and their shareholders so you have to drive the performance of the organization up significantly which then leads to key people who decide where to invest to divert products to cork in that case rather than somewhere else mm. Um, so, so that's how it works in organizations that allocate capital that way. But in order to get that performance improvement, you can't rely purely on the minority of people who happen to be managers, if you like. Mm. There's, there's a far more talent and, and the amount of talent in any organization is greater than what, what managers realize. So a, lo a lot of employees, when they come to work, what managers see is the amount of discretionary effort that they decide to give to their job compared to their other interests. Mm. So if the employees themselves can really believe in, you know, this is about keeping jobs, this is about our local community, in this particular case during a recession, et cetera, et cetera, if that's genuine and sincere and you have a leadership team that um, applies uh, the process, the rapid mass engagement process well, then you can achieve amazing things. And that's just one site that did that. Okay, so let's just talk about the principles of the rapid mass engagement and mm. starting from that bottom up and building a mm. culture from, from mm. the bottom. How does one go about that? Right, well, the, the first thing is that the employees themselves will not believe it's possible. So you have to overcome, it's a bit like if somebody offers you a very expensive car at a very cheap price, you make the assumption that 
It's too it's good to be true. Stolen, yeah. yeah, yeah. And mo- mo- most things that are too good to be true in life turn out to be too good not to be true. So there's a, a major issue about employees actually believing that this is possible. And obviously, the more times it's done and is successful, the easier it is. But it's inherently unlikely from an employee point of view um, that management is going to share power with them. Uh, in making some important decisions for the business. That just doesn't sound plausible. So it starts with workshops for the entire workforce. So that's the mass bit of rapid mass. Mm. The rapid bit is it's done very, very quickly. So often three workshops a day, three hours, nine hours a day, um, delivery seven days a week. So you get momentum. And in those workshops, the employees have explained to them how rapid mass engagement works and they get the opportunity to test it and and all the um all the assumptions and biases against management and against uh, capitalism and all sorts of stuff comes out and that has to be handled in a respectful way in a way that explains to people yes i understand all that but this is an opportunity for you as the employee to have a lot of say in the not only your future but in the future of your community and and people after you in the organization Mm. Um, and that's that's how it starts and those workshops produce diagnostic data and they make decisions so contrary to employee voice and other things it's not employees say something managers go away and then decide what to do here employees make decisions all the way through the process they have the power to make decisions within this process Mm. and that and that that faith in them and that trust in them and that support for them in making decisions well in complex situations like how do you grow a competitive business and you know like in medical devices or wherever that that's um very very developmental for everybody involved Mm. if you're just tuning in you're listening to taking stock here on news talk and i'm speaking to frank divine He's written a book called Rapid Mass Engagement and it's about driving continuous improvement in corporate culture in organisations. Frank, that's a very interesting point that you made there about um, how do you move from consulting to decision making, being part of a decision making process? Uh, Because lots of corporate culture is about a management team coming in and telling you this is what our culture this is what our corporate culture is this is what our values is it's not something that you get to be a part of in those workshops just let's take that one element of the workshop is how do you stop those workshops uh, from becoming talking shops or or worse you know um a therapy session or where all of the complaints uh, come out how do you actually just deal with that one well, thing one of the key things is moving Moving the discussions from, if you like, parent-child. So the organization tells the employees, the employees, are, uh, if you like, act like children in that sense. They, they they don't have power. They have to do what their parents want them to do, et cetera, et cetera, to adult-adult. So it starts from the situation that you are going to make decisions. So you need to make decisions well. That means you need to be able to make them on the basis of data, not on assumptions and and everything else. So there's a, there's a very powerful, if, what I would call commercial learning uh, going on in a private sector organization here. How, mm. how does capital get allocated? How do you beat competitors? What do you have to do to get jobs into Ireland, which is a very expensive 
place to manufacture anything that has any amount of energy in it because of the high price of energy in Ireland. Mm. So you have to overcome all those realities in order to attract people to come and invest in your place. Mm. Um, so that so that creates a sense of realism. There's this, the, the approach is forced prioritization, so it's not a talking shop because decisions have to be made within the three hours. It's not a... Um, it's not a griping session because the the small groups in the workshop have to decide what they think are the is the biggest single obstacle to achieving whatever whatever you're trying to achieve on the particular site. The other distinction, Mandy, to be aware of, you don't do this at corporate level. Mm. It's done so for example, the culture in Cork in Ringisgiddy will be different from any other Dupuis site anywhere else. Um so the whole process has to um, take into account, respect the local culture, the local stories in the plant, the things that went on, the things that are in people's memory, what they remember. All of that has to be incorporated into it so it becomes the employee's culture, not some predetermined culture that the consultants come in, in to sell them. Mm. And that, by the way, I get challenged on that a lot. You know, you, you're being paid by management, so they know what the culture is. And I can genuinely say to them because that's not the case. No, that isn't the case. Yeah, this is this is going to be your culture that you design, and in this workshop today, you're going to start that process by creating some behavioural data that's your based on your life, not just your working life, but your life. And we're going to take that behavioural data, and a group of your peers that you will elect will work with me to create the codification of your new culture in your own words. And Frank, have you seen this um, become more prevalent across uh, large business? Do you think that this is something that um, those corporates actually have an appetite for now in a way that they haven't before? Um, it's an interesting one. I, I spoke to people who've done this successfully about why did other sites in their organisation not, if you like, learn from their experience, mm. even though... And there's an element of not invented here. There's an element of, um, uh, it might have worked there, but that's because whatever, there was high unemployment in Ireland or whatever. Um, so there's all, all people often argue that their particular organization is unique. And it is unique in a way, but it doesn't mean you can't learn the lessons from successful. And also, by the way, less successful applications of this kind of philosophy. In the book, I have a whole chapter on what when things didn't go as well so yeah. that people can learn, you know, to, to avoid publication bias. You know, you don't want just to hear, you know, like this is these are all the good stories, but here's here's some things that didn't go well and here's why and and here's how to avoid it. Yeah. And I think actually the demonstration where you kind of look at um, the the top down versus bottom up, and yes. you can see, you know, how how they are differentiated and mm. and the advantages in one over the other. It's absolutely fascinating. I'll just leave with this. Uh, I asked somebody about their involvement in uh, corporate culture in their organisation. Do they feel they're part of it? Would they want to become part of it? And they said, look, the people in in upstairs, the management, they're in charge of the corporate culture. We do all the work. Where will we get time <laughs> to be decision makers? Well, look, it's a fascinating book. It's called Rapid Mass Engagement. And thank you very much, uh, Frank Devine, for My joining pleasure, us. My pleasure, Mandy. Thank you. Thank you.
You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, after the break, Thomas Uber of The Currency talks to us about their investigation into drug use in Ireland. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, the currency of late have been writing a number of articles which look at a radical rethink on how we deal with the issue of drug use in this country. Of course, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs is up and running at the moment, but here to discuss all of it with me is Thomas Huber, who is Deputy Editor of The Currency. Thomas, thank you very much for joining me. Now, you looked um, from a number of angles, I suppose, at at this issue of drug use. Um, Can you just maybe explain to us the two articles which started off your editorial, what they were looking at individually? Yeah, we had two very good pieces. Uh, One by my colleague, Rosanna Cooney, who was looking at uh, the whole area of research around psychedelic drugs and the most commonly known um, option uh, in that area would be magic mushrooms, as we call them. And, you know, they're being uh, examined as a potential treatment for a number of uh, mental disorders. And then uh, another journalist, Kate DeMolder, uh, covered cocaine use in Ireland, which is absolutely massive. It's the highest uh, used uh, drug per capita in Europe. I mean, Ireland is the highest user of cocaine in Europe per capita. So that's that's definitely a big problem there. Uh, and uh, I was trying to bring those together and, you know, have a, a, a kind of take a step back and write about how we deal with those uh, drugs, what we can do with them, what we can't do with them, and what has worked, what hasn't in various countries. Uh, And that was the starting point. Yeah. And then writing about it yourself, you did come to an interesting sort of conclusion that, you know, tackling the source and targeting drug lords and raiding drugs and all these statistics that we get all the time about what the Gardaí have done, that's just not enough. Yeah, look, I'm a business journalist and I looked at the market for drugs essentially in that article and um, what what has been discussed at the Citizens' Assembly uh, notably is that there's a lot of demand uh, for drugs in the market and that's from people who have been interviewed themselves at the Assembly who've been using drugs saying they were traumatised, they had very difficult episodes in their life or uh, they were just uh, looking for ways to escape from the daily grind and that was uh, a way for them to solve issues in their life that they couldn't solve elsewhere, either because they couldn't get support, they couldn't get medical treatment when they needed it, and they resorted to drugs. And that demand is always going to be there. Mm. It doesn't matter how many people we arrest and how many you know stashes we the guardie go and, and find. Uh, just in the days before I wrote that article, they had found more than two million euros worth of cocaine just in, in one day of searches across several premises. But there's always going to be another drug dealer stepping into the breach and supplying that demand. So while you do need to stop, you know, those kind of um, networks and trafficking and all that, uh, they're definitely a criminal element. At the same time, you're not going to stop the demand just by stopping the supply. Mm. So that there's another angle to it, really. Yeah, and in looking at some of the the reasons and some of, listening to some of the testimonies before the Citizens' Assembly, it, it does become clear that stability is a big issue. We often think that drugs are a substitute, I suppose, for emotional support or mis- mi- missing social circles. But what a lot of them say is that this is this is about stability for them and homelessness is something that has creeped up quite a bit in their testimonies. It does, yes. And uh, I mean, there's always uh, a kind of um, link between the two. When you see people on the street who are homeless, there's always this notion that a lot of them are, um, you know, addicted to drugs or suffering from that problem. And it is 
it, it starts uh, early in their lives from uh, some examples we've heard at, at the Citizens' Assembly. Some people were there saying that they, they were born with heroin addiction just because their mother was using heroin when they were in, in their womb. So that's how early it can mm. start. But at the same time, it's not the only uh, example. There was also a student, uh, very um, kind of standard college student speaking in front of the Citizens' Assembly saying he had seen a lot of people in his generation um, going away, like brothers, sisters, cousins, people you would normally go to when you're growing up trying to figure out how to get by in life. Just not around, emigrating, um, leaving for a job, housing issues during the crisis and now the housing crisis and um, like a, a lot more support just around the person. And he said that was also a way uh, that drove people towards drugs. So like that's that's uh, some of the factors behind that, definitely. I guess looking at Kate Mulder's piece as well, one of the things that surprised me was, I suppose, the age profile of people um, and the people in society who are using it that I just didn't think of in that way. Um, maybe take us through some of the demographics who are rising in terms of use. One that struck me was the use of cocaine in the building industry and on building sites. Yeah, and the main interview in that article by Kate is a builder, a man called David. Uh, he said just regular uh, builders on sites were using cocaine as a, you know some some way of feeling stronger and active, uh, just like they would drink a coffee. He said, mm. and that's really striking that they're not people you you know necessarily associate with drugs. There are no rock stars that are have a wild lifestyle. There are no uh, homeless people either. They have jobs. They are not uh, struggling on a daily basis. And you might think that they're going uh, towards drugs as a, a way of escaping a very hard reality. They're they're just have very normal lives. And that's it. It's the ordinariness of it now. It's so pervasive. Um, is there a reason why, or when you mentioned those statistics, the international statistics, and and how high Ireland are in them now per capita? Is there a rationale around why why that is the way it is for Ireland? It's it's hard to to tell. Um, some of the experts Kate interviewed uh, drew links from say um, the lack of some services clearly in terms of uh, uh, mental health and and that side of the health service that is insufficient and uh, people might self medicate as a result. Um, there is, uh, I suppose, uh, a kind of um, maybe a. It's my own opinion uh, as uh, somebody who moved to Ireland having grown up elsewhere mm. that uh, um, alcohol as well is very present in society and addiction is seen as something that is very common, unfortunately. And uh, whether it's legal or illegal drugs, uh, th that's very pervasive. So there are, there are certainly models in everybody's family, the bad models, uh, unfortunately, of people who did become uh, addicted to a substance or another and it becomes you passed on from generation to generation. Yeah, and, and then just another extended version of that, yeah, yeah. progression onwards. Um, mostly men um, who are being treated for, for addiction when it comes to cocaine, so, but an increasing number of women uh, using... Yeah, that was striking in the figures from, from Kate's reporting um, about, I think she said 40% yes, now, right, yeah. uh, women that are in those uh, services seeking treatment for uh, cocaine and you know, some of it was crack cocaine and you, you have that uh, kind of very difficult situation of uh, women who are using crack cocaine, mostly in, in very deprived neighborhoods and situations that are socially difficult, but also powdered cocaine that is rising uh, in usage among women, not just men. 
and forgive my ignorance on this one, but like the difference between powdered cocaine and crack cocaine is there is it a price thing? It, it is, and it's also the way it's taken. That like crack cocaine is smoked in pipes, and powdered cocaine is more seen as the, the party drug. You do lines uh, when you're out at night, and it's it's seen as more socially acceptable. But uh, increasingly, it's it's very widespread as well, uh, and the, the lines are being blurred. It's just both the mm. use of both is rising. Before we just leave this part of, of this topic, one of the other things that struck me in Kate struck me in Kate's piece was about how the way we socialise has changed and that has been conducive to cocaine use. But it was the complete opposite of what I kind of imagined this lifestyle to be. Like, who gets a kick out of sitting at home in a living room? doing cocaine. There's a lot of that seems to have changed during the pandemic uh, that people were not going out and started uh, socializing at home and there that, that also came up actually during the citizens assembly and the students speaking there the younger uh, witnesses told the assembly that what was before uh, maybe a way of um, you know building up energy before a night out taking a pill or a line of cocaine and then going out drinking actually now the the original drug taking uh, has become the the full extent of yeah. the night out, and the drinking is is going down, but the the initial drug, whether it's cocaine or ecstasy, is still being taken, and that's now what is fueling the the whole party. Well, yeah. Well, let's turn to the other side of this discussion, uh, Thomas, if we can. Um, this was the issue of psychedelic drugs, and it was called in the piece um, on the currency a kind of renaissance of this. So, first of all. What are they talking about when they're talking about using psychedelic drugs as a form of medication? Yeah, psychedelic drugs are a group of substances, substances and some of them would be well-known like LSD uh, in a synthetic form or mushrooms in a natural form. And they contain these substances that act on your brain and seem to somehow trip a switch in the way we think. Um, so they create those wild experiences for people who take them and they describe these trips that they, they see incredible things, but at the same time, they're increasingly uh, being studied for medical use. And they were before. Um, that was big in the 60s, um, including in the US. And then there was a complete change of policy. The US President Nixon, Nixon at the time had this thing called the war on drugs and decided that the, really, the, the way to go against drugs was repression, go hard on them, and they ended up killing all those um, avenues for research as a result that wasn't uh, legal anymore and wasn't funded or anything like that. But that's the kind of thing that's coming back now that maybe if we find the right way of using those drugs, we can use them to help people uh, and ironically, including people who are uh, in situations of addiction or things like that. Mm. And just in terms of um, the process of, of using them, I suppose, in a controlled environment, is there anybody on a pathway to regulation or is it being explored to that extent or yeah, is it still an outlier? There are some companies and uh, medical research institutes going in, in that direction. Uh, there have actually been some tests, uh, trials done, including in Ireland by some researchers at Trinity College uh, as part of a wider international pool of, uh, of research. And what they say is, Really, if, if you administer those kind of psychedelic drugs while having um, a therapy uh, session at the same time, and that's critical, that it's not just a chemical action, you need to have uh, a trained psychotherapist or a psychiatrist uh, talking to the person, the patient at the same time and trying to unlock whatever uh, their problem is while the drug is active, they're getting some results. Now, it's not uh, a promise of solving anybody's, you know, PTSD or depression or those kind of disorders, but in 
in that trial in uh, that was partly conducted in Trinity, they came to about a third of patients responding to that kind of treatment. So that's quite promising in people who otherwise would be stuck uh, in in long term, uh, you know, mental illnesses or have trouble uh, just getting over a, te- a difficult episode in their life. Yeah, and, and according to Rosanna and some of the academics she's spoken to, a lot more of the research shows that in the short term for treatment of depression with that associated therapy, it can be quite um, useful. But over a longer period of time, it doesn't seem to be as successful. That's what we don't know exactly. And how long does it last uh, is a big issue because if you have to resort to those drugs over and over again, it won't really be a solution for those patients. So that's where the limits might be. And we don't know yet how promising they really are. Uh, It's early days in reviving this research after so many decades of it being stopped. There was a gentleman that she spoke to as well called Stuart. I think he's involved in a, in a place that's in Ireland called Inward Bound. Are you familiar with this? Dara Stuart. Uh, he's actually from Ireland, but the business he runs is uh, in the Netherlands and they uh, invite people to experience those drugs where they are legal and try to, you know, work on themselves while they're there uh, and see what that can do for them. So it is in some areas, making progress and becoming uh, something you can actually go and buy as a service. Mm. Uh, We're not there yet in Ireland, though that's not actually legal here. Yeah, so no recommendations for us. I can't can't say I've tried it. It's not not possible here. (laughs) Um, Just go back to the Citizens' Assembly, if I can, Thomas. Um, I hadn't watched any of it, to be honest with you, until your piece, and I went back and looked at some of the testimony. Very powerful. Um, So what is the Citizens' Assembly now designed to do? What's the time frame for that? They have another, uh, they're midway through the number of sessions. So I think it's six in total uh, over the course of this year. There's more to go before the end of the year. And it will be like the previous citizens' assemblies like they did on climate change, for example. So uh, this sample of people that are representative of Irish society, whether that's age, gender, uh, location in the country, all those people come together in a room, they listen to the experts, the people who've gone through those situations, and then they make recommendations to the Oracles for legislation. So the, the citizens' assembly essentially doesn't decide anything. They're just there to give advice. But uh, we've seen it in, you know, areas like, um, for example, the before the abortion referendum or difficult issues that society, maybe politicians are too scared to touch themselves directly. Mm. That gives them a way in because you, they have this basis of citizens, everyday people uh, from the street who have heard the evidence and they are a bit more familiar with what the feeling is going to be in the country and then politicians can grasp it and try and do something, change the laws, uh, which would be, I suppose, the next step. Then we need to see uh, definitely not before the next election, I would say, but Mm. any recommendations coming out of the assembly then can be used by the government, by uh, the erectors to change the laws and have something change, like we've seen on on climate change, for example, the laws now, the targets, all that. The, that all came from the Citizens' Assembly at the very start. So that's that's where it starts. Well, Thomas, thank you very much for coming in and sharing all that detail with us today. As I say, it's a fascinating piece of work. It's on the currency if anybody wants to go back and have a look at those articles. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Thomas Hubert of The Currency. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up with Elon Musk hinting at interfering in next year's general election, we look at the latest goings on at X. Now, you're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Elon Musk, billionaire, entrepreneur and owner of X, formerly known as Twitter, has taken a little jab at the Irish government, threatening to take legal action against the state's proposed 
hate speech laws. Joining me now to give us an update on Elon Musk's shenanigans and the latest in X development is Elaine Burke, who's co-host of the podcast, greatly named for tech's sake. Well done. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Elaine. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, um, I want to just start by talking about his latest foray and his comments about Ireland's proposed hate speech. How did they even come about? How did he get involved in this? Uh, just because it's something that happens to be talked about on a platform that he owns, I suppose. Now, he doesn't engage with uh, every tweet on the platform. Obviously, that would be too intense. Uh, but he can be selective about what he engages in. And and things about free speech would tend to catch his attention. Like, And he's considered himself a free speech absolutist. And this was uh, in response to a tweet by a group called Free Speech Ireland that he responded to from his own Elon Musk account. Mm. Uh, So maybe he has an alert set up for free speech tweets or something like that. Uh, He does tend to insert himself into those narratives fairly frequently. Yeah, okay. so you think it was about that? Because I was kind of looking at it because the Digital Services Act and stuff had come out last week and I thought maybe he's kind of putting all these things together. And there seems to be a little bit of confusion in his mind. Does he think that that, you know, it's it's something that will affect America or it'll... Uh, it seems to be a lot of confusion in general, but like, is it confusion or is it just that this guy sent a tweet and he didn't actually put a whole lot of thought yeah. into it? Because that's something that happens quite a lot. Uh, a lot of stock is put into Elon Musk's tweet, but I don't think Elon Musk himself puts a lot of stock into them. He's actually on record in court recently saying that just because I tweet something doesn't mean people are going to believe it. He doesn't actually even expect people to believe what he says yeah, in his yeah, own yeah. tweets. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. And uh, he also has a little bit of ignorance, I do think, when it comes to law. Um, and that has been demonstrated in the past, certainly when it comes to cross jurisdictions and stuff like that. Because when he was uh, letting a lot of people go in Twitter, uh, he seemed to not totally understand that Twitter being an international employer, that those systems would have to be handled very differently in different jurisdictions. It's not uh, his experience as a US employer pans out very differently when you're trying to let people go under, say, Irish laws and there are, you know, very specific processes that you have to take into account if you want to let go of a lot of people in Ireland that wouldn't be reflected in US Mm. employment law but were certainly carried out here. Yeah, that's a great example. He's just a disruptor. He's kind of throwing things in, lobbing bombs into the platform he owns and just watching what transpires as a result. Yeah, that's what he likes doing. Um, Just what's going on at Twitter at the moment for him Obviously, we we had we were all you know engrossed in the the buyout last year and what he paid for it. Like, but what is he? How is it shaping up for him now? Like, I hear this talk of a cryptocurrency that he was he was he was espousing. Where's that at? There seems to be a lot of activity going on in terms of new developments. So the crypto aspect of it and the idea of it becoming something of a payments uh, platform is something that is stemming from his idea that it's now going to be a super app and that came along with the rebrand to X. Uh, so it's no longer Twitter. It's now X as a company. Uh, it was, I, I believe, actually bought out by a holding company that he had called X. So that was probably his long-term plan anyway. He has a long-held affiliation with the letter X and has already ha- owned a company called X com that was involved with payments. Children called X Uh, and Y or... X, Ash and then I think there's another symbol or some figures there. I think they just call the child Ash um, uh, from from what I've been told anyway but the first letter in their name happens to be X as well. Uh, Definitely it's something that he's a big fan of and he does have his his, his little obsessions. He also uh, makes a lot of weed jokes, makes a lot of jokes using the term 420 which is is a weed joke and he ended up buying Twitter for 5420 per share. So he actually will make those jokes just to cost himself money in, in, in certain respects as well. Um, 
But the super app idea, and that's been uh, touted by Linda Yaccarino, who's now been installed as CEO at Twitter, uh, has mentioned that it's going to involve something in terms of payments. Now, we're not seeing much of that rollout just yet, but there are other changes taking place. So there's now uh, a we're hiring uh, aspect that you can add to your LinkedIn profile if you're a verified organisation. So that means that you're paying roughly $1,000 a month for um, verified features. And now that's one of them that you can actually put job postings on Twitter. Uh, There are other changes like that seems like actually something that could be good for the company could actually bring in some short term revenue because uh, companies do spend a lot on hiring and promoting jobs and stuff like that. But then there's other changes that are a lot more suspect and do seem to be guided a lot by Elon Musk's whims. Even Mm. though Lindy Eccarino is now CEO, he is still very much uh, the mouthpiece of the company and does seem to be pulling a lot of the strings. So there was a report that said that links to sites that Elon Musk disliked were being delayed, that there was like a five second delay when you click that link. Uh, I think they may be reinstated, but he did remove headlines from what was called the Twitter card. So the preview of a piece of content that was was linked to on Twitter used to include a headline and then it didn't. I think they're back now. And this is the other thing, the the changes tend to flip flop as well. It's all quite unstable and not really something that curries favour for an app that intends to go into payments infrastructure Mm. and, and dealing with people's finances because trust would be a key element there. Of course. Of course, of course, yeah. Um, now, that super app notion is, is very interesting. So he's he's already tried to monetize it through advertising and the blue tick and all of that, which which was a disaster at the beginning. He then tried to launch Ron DeSantis's campaign on Twitter and it kind of broke down. So being a political platform for elections, not great. Um, this jobs element seems to be, what, a, a, a foray into the LinkedIn space, yeah. maybe. Uh, and then he's got the cryptocurrency but none of them actually working very well in isolation and then when you look at the core product he had the Twitter that we knew and loved the little bird and all that that how is that functioning for you as a user now how do you find that I'm definitely using it less but I was already using it less um, even before any takeover or any hint of a takeover for Elon Musk and I think that was a problem that Twitter was having having gen- genuinely uh, before any of this happened so we can't attribute uh, all of the losses of Twitter's user user base to Elon Musk, but certainly he is having an impact there. Um, and, and anecdotally, you do hear a lot of people say that they're not a fan of him running the app and, and won't be using it, but then we still see certain users that have said as much still using the app. So that's something that actually happens with uh, online platforms is they don't normally just die a death overnight unless there's some sort of catastrophic error that takes them offline. They will usually just kind of fade into insignificance like your Bebo's or your yeah. MySpace. It's kind of like, like how they arrive as well. They, they're they not a success overnight. They, they, they evolve and, you know, people talk about them and, and eventually that's how they become successful. Um. They were a huge part, I suppose, of of Dublin's employment landscape in Dublin 2 in particular. What's happened there now? What does Twitter look like a year on in, in Dublin compared to when he took over? Well, it, it's the team has been gutted. A huge amount of uh, comms staff would have been in, Gub, in Dublin and uh, comms is actually a section of the company that they really gutted in in. Uh, the, the cuts that they made uh, and for a long time if you actually reached out to Twitter's comms team you either got no response for a long time and then it graduated to you got an automated response that was a poop emoji, emoji. <laughs> so that's the the kind of level of maturity and when, when you say comms is it comms in interacting with press queries or is it comms as in promoting 
They would do both. both. So they would certainly do the handling press queries and that's where we were getting no response for a long time. It kind of became a joke that you would have a line in your piece saying we reached out to Twitter for comment, we received a poop emoji, that's it. Um, and uh, they would have also dealt with like writing their own press releases and their own communications tools and dealing with a lot of that. So that's one team that would have had a, a presence here in Dublin that we know internationally was gutted. Uh, another key aspect of Dublin's work here and it was led really well by Sinead McSweeney was its work in uh, public affairs and policy and stuff like that and it's really important to have a good team like that here in Dublin for your EMEA HQ when you're dealing with things like the Digital Services Act and the other legislations that are coming down from the EU Uh, and uh, what's really interesting is if Elon doesn't see a future for Twitter in Dublin. What does that mean for Twitter globally? Mm. Because that's a really important centre to hold. And the people that would have been working in that area would have had huge experience dealing with the EU on these matters. Uh, User experience of dealing with GDPR and other things and preparing for things like the Digital Services Act because this didn't come about overnight. This has been worked on for years. And the EU works with companies to try and give them a heads up on this stuff gives them time to prepare and time to get their compliance in order. So a huge amount of experience in that area uh, will be lost if they ever actually completely pull out of Dublin. Uh, but it's 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 very precarious. Um, some people decided to leave even when they weren't fired because of the precarious nature of work under Elon Musk. And also he presented that idea that he ex- had expectations of workers kind of like staying in the office uh, after hours and uh, really pulling together on something, which is kind of a startup mentality, mm. but it's, it's a massive multinational company. It's not really the way that they're run. Yeah, and speaking of a startup mentality, I think when those two big pieces of legislation in the EU were being crafted, Silicon Valley understood for the first time, okay, moving fast and breaking things is not the same as working with pieces of legislation on this massive scale. I just think they just had no idea what was involved or and and, and they felt that it kind of got away from them, you know. So the fact that he puts no store in trying to work with people, um, I suppose, just compounds that really, doesn't it? Because he, he doesn't want to be regulated and he doesn't want to work yeah, with people. Certainly doesn't want to work with regulators. And he, like he, unfortunately, like he has been given a lot of grace to behave like this. That's what's kind of unfortunate here. Like he hasn't actually been slapped back that often. Um, now, maybe now in the light of the Digital Services Act coming down and Twitter being under that as a very large online platform and having to reach a higher bar for compliance, like maybe a slap is coming. Mm. Um, but even when he has been seen to have manipulated stocks using his yeah. tweets, uh, he got maybe he settled for $20 million for an SEC yeah. lawsuit yeah. over that. I mean, that's really nothing to him. No, you can't imagine any financial fine affecting him. He was prepared to buy that stock knowing it was way over value. And yeah. yeah. Anyway, Donald Trump is back on X now, we see. So just to complete the madness of all of this um, I want to ask you about this cage fight with Mark Zuckerberg is that on or off I can't believe I'm asking well, you but. Like, interestingly like as you said like financial burdens wouldn't really impact this guy but he does seem to have a certain amount of insecurity and does seem to take some things quite personally Personally. and be very reactive to them. So obviously there's a natural rivalry between himself and Mark Zuckerberg since he became the owner of Twitter. And and even before that, just as kind of like prominent tech CEOs who make headlines, like they would have a natural rivalry there. And when he got wind that Mark Zuckerberg was going to be making basically a Twitter competitor, which has turned out to be nearly a Twitter dupe in Mm. in threads, um, he he didn't like that and he proposed a cage match. Um, Not thinking that Mark Zuckerberg would maybe 
like corroborate on the joke and say, yeah, you're on. And Mark Zuckerberg also known to be a jiu-jitsu fighter who actually has meddled in the sport and uh, has performed pretty well there. So then it became this long running joke, I think, for Zuckerberg to, to play up with. And he got bored with it very quickly, as you would, because it wasn't a serious thing. Like It's something that got talked about and got headlines and that's something that Elon Musk certainly enjoys mm. from what I can tell. Um, and he he's tried to stoke the flames a bit more, would keep kind of sending tweets that suggested he was uh, taking it seriously and had conversations about holding it in the it- Italy's Colosseum and, and all this kind of stuff. But then when you check in with Mark Zuckerberg to fact check, yeah. you find out that that's, he hasn't heard anything about plans moving forward. And that's something that's really important, I think, when it comes to Elon Musk and his tweets is to fact check them because as I said he has said himself he doesn't expect people to believe everything he says and there is a problem with taking things that specifically tech CEOs because I don't see this happen as much in other uh, businesses uh, t- taking what they say for granted and taking what they say at, at their word mm. and, and I think uh, the best thing that can come out of Elon Musk is a reckoning across the board yeah. for that to kind of have a bit more scrutiny for what these people say and what they promise. Exactly. The other, when you mentioned Twitter being gutted from a comms point of view, the other area he gutted, of course, was that uh, truth examination section, the facts section, the fact checking section. He's not remotely interested in that. Before I let you go, um, can I ask about Jack Dorsey's platform that he set up as a rival to Twitter? How is that going now? Yeah, it, it definitely is. A lot of these platforms like Blue Sky, which is Jack Dorsey's uh, rival, and Mastodon have done well out of the ructions at Twitter. Now, they're still nowhere near the level that at Twitter, but we, we kind of mentioned it earlier. These things tend to be user-led and a bit organic because you need a community to build a community because no one's going to go there to talk to no one yeah. or to just feel like they're talking to themselves. So it did help when you get a bit of a mass movement when it tends to be like a massive change is made at Twitter. And We're all off. Use, yeah. use goes up on Mastodon <laughs> and Blue Sky. Yeah. Um, and there's other rivals out there as well but Blue Sky gets a lot of attention being that it's Jack Dorsey the former uh, CEO of Twitter's uh, new venture and it is a bit along the lines of Mastodon in that it's trying to be part of this more kind of federated version of social media uh, taking a different approach to the the protocols that underpin it and all that's very nerdy and technical about it but that's actually been very attractive to the tech sector the tech sector have actually been quite keen to adopt this but whether it has the stickiness of something like Twitter remains to be seen Well who knows we'll definitely be watching it all with interest but for now we're going to leave it there that was Elaine Burke co-host of the For Tech's Sake podcast Elaine thank you very much for joining us today Thanks so much well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first every Friday morning on the News Talk app or wherever you get your podcasts from. My thanks to all of today's guests for their time and their insights. And thank you to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound and Stephen Daunt on research. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.